Well, remember as we make our way through these commandments that they're basically summaries of what it means to love God and what it means to love each other. And the first four commandments deal specifically with our vertical love for God. But then these commandments that we're in now in the second half of the ten words are really focused on how to maintain a society that is peaceful and flourishing and points each other back to God and treats each other the way God treats us. So we've considered what it means to protect uh, authority and recognize legitimate authority and honoring father and mother. And we've talked about the importance of recognizing the, the call to, not, to protect life and not murder. And then the call last week to protect marriage and family. And this week we talk about protecting property and re respecting each other's uh, property rights. And that may seem kind of strange, but you have to put it in the broader context of what God is giving to his people here is how to, how to maintain a just society, a society that's marked by love for God and love for neighbor. So we come to commandment eight this morning, thou or you shall not steal. In studying this week, I came across a humorous illustration that I'd like to share with you. It's the story of a factor, factory worker who day after day attempted to steal items from his workplace. And every single day he took a wheelbarrow that was filled with factory items, and every day as he left, he got caught. Cylinders, iron ore, tools. His goal was to steal the items in order to sell them for cash for his family. And day after day, the attempted thief was stopped, and the stuff was taken away from him. Finally, it came to be his last day at the factory, and the manager was waiting for him to come out with all the contraband. And he got to the door of the factory as usual, and sure enough, they pulled back the cover from the wheelbarrow, and there was stuff. And they confiscated it and said to him, You are a fool. Here you are, you get caught every single day, and you got away with nothing. To which the man said, Sir, you were the fool. I have been stealing wheelbarrows. Well, a humorous take on thief, being a thief. But really, we, we have examples of this all throughout our culture. In fact, the most popular uh, cinematic franchise, uh, the Marvel Cinematic Universe, with the Avengers being the capstone of that, has as one of its key figures Ant-Man. What is Ant-Man? He's a thief. That, those tales go back as old as Robin Hood. We could argue whether or not that was truly justice or injustice. But then we have it all over our sports as well. And we know that when Pastor Mark, it's a joke around heritage, whenever Pastor Mark uses a sports illustration, an angel gets its wings. So I'm going to give two sports illustrations this morning in hopes that angels are equipped double. First of all, basketball. Here's an illustration. We all know, and I learned that this week because I, you know, think about these things. One of the second-tier stats that is most important to teams in terms of success is stealing. Being able to steal the basketball. And John Stockton, famous Utah jazz basketball player among other, among other teams, man I grew up watching, stole the ball 3,265 times in his career. He committed theft more than any other player and what was his punishment the hall of fame he got the hall of fame for it ricky henderson great baseball player took 1406 bases without permission and he didn't even earn them by hitting a ball 
He just stole them. Well, those silly examples aside, we do live in a world where theft is a reality. We have banks, and those banks have extensive security, uh, and we have armed guards and security at different places. We must have safes with steel doors and locks on them. We have to have burdensome internet passwords, which thankfully the Mac does a good job of remembering for you. Otherwise, I would have no hope to get into any account I have. And what do we do when we get out of our cars? We click a little button twice. Not once, but twice. And therefore, what what happens is if a lot of people in a parking lot get out of the car at once, you hear these chirps. We live in a world that has parking lots full of chirping cars. And it's all because theft is a reality and stealing is a reality. So this morning, what we're going to do is consider this commandment of you shall not steal under two headings. The first heading is going to be the situations of stealing, where we're going to look at what does God have in mind here when he talks about theft. And then second of all, the solution to stealing. I've got ten situations, which I'm going to tick through very quickly, so don't worry. I'll, I'll, I'll move them at a brisk pace, especially with a meal coming. And then uh, second, under the second point, we're going to look at five solutions that the Scriptures give us for uh, how to overcome this particular temptation. So number one, the situations of stealing. Now, the, the Hebrew word for stealing that is translated here covers all kinds of conventional types of theft. Among them would be things that we readily think of when we consider theft or stealing. Those would, things would include burglary, which is br- breaking into a home or building uh, a building to commit theft. Another example might be robbery, which is just taking property directly from another, which is, can be done by either violence or intimidation. Larceny, which is taking something without permission and not returning it. Hijacking, using force to take goods in transit or seizing control of a bus, truck, plane, etc. Shoplifting, which would be taking items from a store during business hours without paying for them. Pickpocketing or purse snatching. And, but also this, this Hebrew term also covers a wide range of exotic and complex thefts. Things like embezzlement which is the fraudulent taking of money or other goods entrusted to one's care. There's also extortion, which is getting money from someone by means of threats or misuses of authority. And then there's racketeering, which is obtaining money by any illegal means. Those would be the things we readily think of when we think of what it means to not steal. And and of course, those are legitimate, and I'm not going to spend any time on them because we readily think about those things. Rather, the ten I'm proposing are ones we may not commonly think about but still fall under this general command. So I'm not trying to minimize burglary and robbery, robbery and extortion. I'm just saying those things we readily think about, we don't need to spend a lot of time explaining why those are wrong. Those are clearly clear forms of theft. We have laws on the books about them that, that support that, but... but for, for the purposes of this sermon, I want to talk about 10 situations that we might not think of. Now, some of them we will, but not all of them. First of all, let's think of the ones we think of that are pretty common. First of all, the theft of property. This is clearly what's in view in uh, the first part of this command. Because the reason why I say that is because when Moses is going to begin to explain the Ten Commandments in chapter 21, 22, and 23 of Exodus which we will cover in one whole sermon, I hope, just jumping through those daily examples. I want you to see in Exodus 22, verse 1, that he's thinking about property theft. 
And this would be grievous to Pastor Thad because it deals with sheep and other forms of livestock. Not a good thing. So Exodus 22, verse 1. If a man steals an ox or a sheep and kills it or sells it, he shall repay five oxen for an ox and four sheep for a sheep. So there's a law of restitution built in there. But the point is, it's theft of property. It's taking something that belongs to someone else. Did you know that in the United States, property theft occurs in some form every three seconds? I don't know how they figure out that statistic, but that's an amazing reality if it's even half true. Secondly, the theft of people. We might refer to this as man-stealing, the New Testament does. But if you look at Exodus 21, verse 16, you see this example. Whoever steals a man and sells him, and anyone found in possession of him, shall be put to death. Slavery was clearly forbidden in the Old Testament. But we, we, we were, Paul calls it man-stealing in 1 Timothy chapter 8 or chapter 1 verses 8 through 10. I want to read those verses to you because in 1 Timothy, Paul really summarizes the second half of the 10 words and applies them in various ways. He says, now we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully, understanding this, that the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane, for those who strike their fathers and mothers, for murderers, for the sexually immoral, men who practice homosexuality, And now he says, enslavers. That is, those who take someone captive in order to sell them into slavery. Liars, perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine. Our country's been marked by that grievous sin for for at least its initial founding, and we still bear a lot of the results of that. But it was clearly in disobedience to God that such things happened. It was often endorsed by the church, sadly. But the theft of property and the theft of people is clearly condemned by Scripture. Thirdly, false weights and measures. This could be seen, I'm not going to turn us there, but in Deuteronomy chapter 25, verses 13 through 16, and Proverbs 11, 1. What do I mean by false weights and measures? It's the idea of getting more out of a transaction, specifically a business transaction, than what is deserved. The modern equivalent would be overpricing goods and services and cashing in on another person's need. Proverbs 20, verse 14 says, Bad, bad, says the buyer, but when he goes away, then he boasts. The idea is you have an innocent person who's selling something and you know that they don't know that it is worth more than you're buying it for, but you don't tell them that. Now, it's one thing for a person to know that and sell it to you, and say, look, I know that. I'm, I'm just trying to get. A, I'm trying to cut a deal for somebody. That's different. But if you're trying to undercut somebody for the purpose of buying in their ignorance, that's unjust. Bad, bad, says the buyer. And then you walk away and you go, yeah. See, I told him it wasn't worth as much, but then I actually got it. Now, that's not to mean we can't get deals, but the deal has to be legitimate and within reasonable boundaries. We can't undercut somebody. Proverbs 22 verses 20 or 22 and 23 say, "Do not rob the poor because he is poor, or crush the afflicted at the gate, for the Lord will please their, plead their cause and rob of life those who rob them." See, there's a tendency to take advantage of people who may not know as much, who may not benefit as much. Well, they don't know that they're poor, they're, but to take advantage of them is to incur the discipline of God. 
Leviticus 25, 14. And if you make a sale to your neighbor or buy from your neighbor, you shall not wrong one another. Why would God have to give that? Why would God have to say that if that were not a temptation? Because in some sales and in some buying, there is a temptation to wrong one another. Profiteering, overcharging, underpaying, those are all forms of theft. Granted, now let me make the caveat, as long as the two parties are informed about that, that's one thing. If you were to go up to somebody and say, hey, I'll give you a hundred bucks for that, and you know it's worth, they know it's worth a thousand, and they say, sure, I'm just trying to offload it. I'll give it to you for a hundred. That's one thing. But if we're, if we're legitimately trying to undercut someone, that's a false weight and measure. It's an imbalance. And Proverbs 11.1 1 says that we ought not to do that. Fourthly, the selling of goods of inferior quality is addressed. Amos chapter 8, verses 4 to 6. When will the new moon be over that we may sell grain, and the Sabbath that we may offer wheat for sale, that we may make the ephah small and the shekel great? See, ephahs were big and shekels were small but they're saying let's reverse that because we can't wait to get out and buy and sell and do deceit stuff and deal deceitfully with false balances that we may buy the poor for silver and the needy for a pair of sandals and sell the chaff of the wheat while good marketing is fine brothers and sisters false advertising and deceptive packaging Here's looking at you, potato chips. <laughs> and fraudulent merchandise are not okay. Where defective goods or services are sold or people are enticed to buy something that is not good for them, those sorts of things would be forbidden. Also, fifthly, the non-payment of debt or refusing to pay on time. Romans 13, 8 and 9, Owe no one anything except to love each other, for the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and any other commandment are summed up in this word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Now just to be clear, it's not that debt in and of itself is always a sinful thing, but the refusal to pay it, the refusal, now, there are times where it must be deferred because other situations happen in our life. That's, that's a different matter. But the refusal to pay it, and the refusal to pay it on time even when you have the money, is what is being addressed here. Proverbs three twenty-seven and 28 speak to this. Do not withhold good from those to whom it is due when it's in your power to do it. Do not say to your neighbor, go and come again tomorrow. I will give it when you have it with you. Deuteronomy 24:15. You shall give him his wages on the same day, talking about an employer, before the sun sets, for he is poor and counts on it, lest he cry against the, you to the Lord and you be guilty of sin. So this deferring things, of with, 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 when you have a legitimate ability to do it, and yet you defer it, that's what the scriptures are condemning. In Deuteronomy 24, it would condemn the employer who does that. Well, I'll pay you tomorrow. I mean, I've got to run to the bank, and that's just inconvenient. No, you pay the man if he's dependent on you in that society. And then Proverbs 3, speaking of not withholding what is due if it's in your power to do it. Sometimes it's not in our power to do it. But if it's in our power to do it, we need to do it. Number six, excessive interest. The charging of unreasonably high interest rates, otherwise called usury, where money is lent at exorbitant rates in order to make an unjust profit. Look at Exodus 22, verse 25. Exodus 22, 25. If you lend money to any of my people with you who is poor, you shall not 
be like a money lender to them, and you shall not exact interest from them. This would include many credit card companies and unfair payday loan operations that exact unjust interest on the poor, 20-30%. Ridiculous. Outlandish. Profiting off the poor. It would also include price gouging where the laws of supply and demand are used to take advantage of customers. Excessive interest. Those sorts of things. That's not to say that interest can't be charged. Of course, the Bible speaks of legitimate interest, but we're talking about excessive and things that are way outside the bounds that are done clearly for the purpose of profiting the one who is lending. Various forms of fraud would be number seven. Failing to pay what is owed to others. Jeremiah 22 verse 13. Woe to him who builds his house by unrighteousness and his upper rooms by injustice who makes his neighbor serve him for nothing and does not give him his wages. This is expecting excessive volunteerism and never paying anybody. That's unjust and it's wrong. God's people must... Now, we can't control what happens in culture, but we're talking about what happens in God, among God's people. Those sorts of things where we take advantage of a brother or sister's excessive generosity and don't pay them. This is what's being communicated in Jeremiah 22. This guy's got a house. This guy's got upper rooms. And he did it on the backs of generous people. Now, of course, we're to give generously and serve wholeheartedly and not demand that everybody pay us for everything. That's the one I'm advocating for. But Jeremiah says, Woe to the one who builds his house, and he calls it unrighteous and unjust because he's, not, he's expecting people to serve him for nothing. James 5.4 condemns this as well. Behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you, and the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. This would include things like filing false insurance claims, failing to report all income on tax returns, check fraud, which is intentionally bouncing checks here and there, even though you have an intent to put it in your account, but it's not in there and you write the check anyway. Taking intellectual property, violation of copyrights, illegal downloading, plagiarism, identity theft, those sorts of things, which the old writers of the Old Testament couldn't dream of, but we and our, all of our technological genius have invented new ways to steal. Workplace waste, number eight. Employees fill in false time cards and call in sick when they want a day off. This is their theft of time, where we start late, finish early, stretch breaks and lunches, waste time in between, surfing the internet, scrolling Facebook, playing computer games. Whether we give anything less, whenever we give anything less than our best effort, we're robbing our employer of the productivity we owe them. Titus chapter two, verses nine and 10 speak to this. Bond servants are to be submissive to their own masters and everything. They are to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering. Pilfering is wasting time. But showing all good faith so that in everything may they, they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. When you don't waste time at work, you commend the gospel. When you, don't, when you do, you don't. So our, our testimony is on the line here, brothers and sisters. We need to be marked by a different sort of work ethic. We don't pilfer. We don't waste time. When we work, we work. And when we rest, we rest. Ninth, governmental waste. This would include our excessive and atrocious national debt. Yes, we as God's people must speak truth to power. And we are irresponsible as a country. 
With its huge bureaucracy, our federal government commits theft on a national scale by wasting public money and by accumulating debt without fully planning to repay it. Deficit spending is really a way of stealing from our future. It's wrong. And then finally, robbing God through neglect of tithes and offerings. Turn with me to Malachi chapter 3. Perhaps the most grievous form of theft among God's people is when they don't give their money to him. When they withhold what ought to be given to the Lord. Malachi chapter 3. God says at the beginning, he talks about um, the messenger that's going to come, which we, we know is ultimately fulfilled in, in John the Baptist. And then when we get down to verse 10, we read the or Verse 10, we read the following. Bring the full tithe. Sorry, let's back up. Uh, Let's go to verse 7. From the days of your fathers you have turned aside from my statutes and have not kept them. Return to me and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. But you say, how shall we return? Will man rob God? Yet you're robbing me. But you say, how have we robbed you? In your tithes and contributions. You're cursed with a curse, for you are robbing me, the whole nation of you. Bring the full tithe into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house, that thereby, they, thereby put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts, if, you will, if, if I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down for you a blessing until there is no more need. So God's people in the days of Malachi were marked by stinginess and a lack of generosity. And of course, in the new covenant, we're called to be sacrificial and generous and regular in our giving, both to our local church and to needy people and to ministries. And therefore, we can, if we fail to be generous and sacrificial and regular in our giving as well, we in fact commit a form of theft against God. Think of how generous our God is and how much he gives. Now, all of it's his. He gives us money to steward. He gives us our responsibilities and possessions and property to steward. And yet, these are all ways in which theft can occur. So just quickly reviewing the situations of stealing, theft of property, theft of people, false weights and measures, the selling of goods of inferior quality, the non-payment of debt and refusing to pay on time, excessive interest, various forms of fraud, workplace waste, governmental waste, and robbing God through neglect of tithes and offerings. You see, we're not nearly as innocent as we thought we were. I don't know about you, but like when you read the commandment not to steal, I think, "Ah, I think I got that one. I don't think I've, I, I think I'm pretty good at that. I mean, I, I'm doing all right. But then we, then, then God's law comes in and begins to search our hearts. And we go, ugh, I think I've been guilty of some of that. I think I have. Maybe not intentionally, maybe not to my knowledge, but I've done that. I, that, that the seeds of that greediness are there. They're in my heart. I see it and I hate it. Don't you? You see that, that profile? And that's why we need solutions. And so I want to talk about five of those as we come to the second part of the sermon here. The solutions to stealing. How do we get this this propensity out of us? How do we begin to attack with God's word and spirit this this propensity toward greed and theft? And even if it never manifests itself in extortion and embezzlement and all those sorts of things, but the seeds of that falsehood and injustice is there. I want to propose five. First of all, an encounter with grace. An encounter with grace. I put this here first because it's impossible to legislate generosity. You've got to be encountered by a generous, gracious God that radically, upside down, transforms your heart. 
Because when that happens and you get treated with lavish generosity and kindness by God, you're transformed. How do I know that? Because it happens all over the New Testament. Let me share some examples with you. Remember the verses we read last week dealing with sexual sin, 1 Corinthians 6, 9 and 10? Well, there it talks about that those, he said, don't be deceived, Paul says, no one who commits, that is committed to a practice of homosexuality or sexual immorality or any form of sin. And then he says, theft. If you're committed, if you're given over to theft and stealing, you're not going to inherit heaven. Judas was one example. John chapter 12, verse 6 says he repeatedly helped himself to the money that was funding the ministry. But in 1 Corinthians 6, Paul says, such were some of you. Which means in that Corinthian church, there are people who are marked by theft, who had been transformed by the grace of God. And were now no longer practicing theft. While they may have still been tempted in various ways, they were not giving themselves wholeheartedly over to theft anymore. And they were marked by being treated with God's grace. Let us remember that Jesus was crucified between two what? Thieves. And one of those thieves is with him now. As he looked over to him and he saw this broken man, as one thief hurled insults at him, and another thief said, don't say that about him. He's done nothing. He's innocent. We're here because I'm paying for my crimes. I, I'm hanging here because I deserve to hang here. He did nothing wrong. Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And, that, and Jesus turned to him and said, you got it. You got it. That's grace. That is grace. The fact that Jesus can overthrow and forgive an entire life marked by theft. What does that say about what he's doing on the cross right there? The value of his blood is enough to cover it. And it's enough to cover 10 million trillion zillion thieves who come to him repentant and ready to receive his forgiveness. One such man was Zacchaeus. Zacchaeus was a thief. And he encountered the grace of Jesus and he was radically transformed. So transformed that he went back and repaid everyone he defrauded and tried to make it right. That's what grace does. Ephesians 4.28, we'll come back to this verse a little bit later. Let the thief no longer steal. Notice he's saying this to the Ephesian church. He's saying, why would he have to say that unless there were thieves present? There were thieves present because God saves thieves. Let the thief no longer steal. You didn't think you just saved good people, did you? Nobody thinks that, right? God only saves bad people. Either self-righteous bad people or unrighteous bad people. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor doing honest work with his own hands so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. See, this is what happens when we encounter grace. Thieves become generous givers. The most selfish, greedy person by grace can be transformed into the most generous, selfless person all as a result of an encounter with the grace of God. Listen, think about this. What kind of God must we serve when we have a God who commands that you shouldn't steal from one another? Only a God who is just and generous can be that kind of God. Only a God who is just and generous, who can be fully trusted, who would never rob us, who would never defraud us, who would never lie to us, who would never cheat us, who would never hold out on us wrongly, who is not out for himself, 
who feels no need and no appetite, but only overflowing kindness and abundance. That's the kind of God who would say, don't steal. A generous, lavish God. And that's the kind of God we have, and that's the kind of God we encounter in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Greedy people get transformed by a generous God, and no other way. You encounter a God who doesn't treat you the way you deserve, but treats you the way Jesus deserves. And that, as a result, causes you to treat people the way they don't deserve because Jesus has treated you the way you don't deserve. An encounter with grace is the first solution to stealing. Secondly, a commitment to trust. That is a commitment to trust God. See, stealing is a sin against God in at least two ways. First, every theft is a failure to trust God's provision for yourself, right? So if we take something, it's because... We don't think God's going to provide it for us. We got to take it. It's an assault on God's providence for yourself. But it's also an assault on God's providence for others. It robs what God has provided for someone else. God has given us everything we have, and he has given our neighbors everything they have. Therefore, to steal from our neighbors is to doubt God's ability to provide what we need and it's to resent his provision for our neighbor. It's sinful in two ways. It's a sin against God and neighbor. It's a failure to love God and love neighbor because we failed to love God by trusting him to provide and we failed to love neighbor by taking what he has provided from them. We are saying that we know better than God how he should provide and distribute his gifts. That's why sin is so heinous, or theft is so heinous. It lies about God. Because we as Christians are called to trust in the providence of God and trust in his kind provision for us in all things, then we will refuse to take what is not ours from others. We won't take persons or things who don't, that don't belong to us. We won't take money. We won't take goods. We won't take land. And we won't take the fruit of other people's labor. In other words, in the Old Testament, stealing is a sin against God's providence. It's a sin that you don't trust that God will provide for you. And we know he's promised he will. Philippians 4.19 My God will supply every need of yours according to his riches in Christ Jesus. He said it. He'll do it. So we trust him for that. So firstly, an encounter, to, an encounter with grace. Second, a commitment to trust. Third, a recognition of rights. A recognition of rights. A concept of stealing would not exist unless there was an assumed right of private property ownership in the scriptures. The taking of something that does not belong to you assumes that that possession belongs to someone. The Bible dignifies personal property. To steal from another is not merely to take their possessions, it's to assault another person's dignity as a human being who has the right to the work of their hands, to the produce of their talents, and to the property that is rightfully theirs. So that you shall not steal would not make sense unless there was clearly private property ownership that existed as a fundamental right, and it does. Fourthly, a dedication in work. A dedication in work. So we've talked about encountering grace. We've talked about commitment to trusting God, both for ourselves and for other people, and we've talked about the recognition that property rights are a real thing. 
But another thing is a dedication to work for ourselves, not work for yourself as a self-employed person, but rather to work in such a way as to be able to provide for yourself and the needs of your family. 1 Thessalonians 4, 11 and 10. Paul instructs the Christians in Thessalonica to aspire to live quietly, to mind your own affairs, and to work with your hands as we instructed you so that you may walk properly before outsiders and be dependent on no one. The goal is to create an environment in the church where ongoing dependence is not a need. But we are to aspire to live quietly. We're to mind our own affairs. Listen, when we're living quietly and we're minding our own affairs, you know what we have time to do? Work. That's what Paul says. If you're pilfering and you're wasting time and you're, you know, you're living loudly and, and, and not minding your own business but minding everybody else's business, you know, we don't have time to do work. And Paul says, mind your own business and get to work and learn not to be dependent on people. This is the way you walk properly before outsiders. It is not, again, it is not, Paul's very concerned with how the gospel gets commended here. And he's saying, look, if we look in the church and we see a bunch of people who are not willing to work and a bunch of people who are wasting time and a bunch of people who are dependent on other people, that's not, that's not commending the gospel. 2 Thessalonians 3.10, For even when we were with you, Paul said, we would give you this command. If anyone's not willing to work, let him not eat. Says that sounds kind of harsh. That sounds kind of non-Christian. Christians are supposed to care for the poor. Yeah, really, but not those who are unwilling to work. That's what love sometimes demands of us. It's to tell the truth. It's to, it's to be kind, yes. It's to be loving, yes. But it's also to say, listen, your deepest problem is you need a job. You know? A lot of problems in your life would be fixed with a good J-O-B. We need to say that sometimes. It's not always the case. We don't need to assume the worst about people. We don't need to, because listen, the Bible teaches also that sometimes crazy things happen and things we are not responsible for and, and things that, 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 that just happen as a result of living in a fallen world. I mean, families can die and providers, can, and we, we have the best of intentions, but things happen. I get that. But this is altogether a different situation that Paul's addressing. Unwillingness to work is not a Christian virtue. And it's not to be commended by the church. Fifthly and finally, a heart of generosity. This is a, this is a great way we cure uh, theft. Because remember, the goal, of, the goal of the Bible is not to get us just not to take stuff out of people's houses. It, the, the high standard of Scripture is, hey, don't ever get caught on the Walmart Facebook cam. You know, like that's the standard of Scripture. Like, well, I haven't been caught there. I don't know that person. You know, it's not me. Like that was somehow the big, the big, the big standard. No, the standard is what Paul says in Ephesians 4.28. Let the thief no longer steal, but let him work. with Doing diligent work with his own hands that he may be able to provide for himself and to help those who have need. So the point is generosity, generosity, living a life of generosity. As God's new covenant people, we must view our wealth and our possessions and our property not so much as a sign of divine favor, but as a stewardship of incredible responsibility. It's not enough that we not steal. We must put all we are and all that we have at the disposal of God, knowing that all of it ultimately belongs to him anyway. I was listening to a podcast recently with Robert Cunningham, who's a pastor out in uh, Lexington and a former friend of mine at, at Murray State. Um, we were there at the same time together. He now pastors Tate's Creek Presbyterian in Lexington. 
And uh, he has a podcast called Every Square Inch. I would recommend it to you. And he asked the question of why, why is socialism as a philosophy and governmental ideology seeming to be gaining so much acceptance among the upcoming generations of millennials? Why does it seem to be gaining traction? Why are, why are the younger generation gravitating towards socialism as a, as, a, as a worthwhile philosophy when in fact it has been proven historically over and over and over again to not work? I mean, is it just entitled youth who are wanting more free stuff? He says, no, that's not the reason at all. He says, the rising generation is disenchanted with American excess. What if the rise of socialism was driven more by greed and consumption than anything else? He says, what's driving the upcoming generation is helping more than accumulating. Making a difference is more important than making a fortune. And while socialism has proven time and time again not to deliver on its promises, it is those hopes of a just society where the weaker help that attract them. What it boils down to is that many young people are not so much rejecting capitalism as its greedy expression, the selfish abuse of capitalism to feed our own consumeristic lust. Capitalism is not inherently a greedy system. It'll serve anything you want it to serve. There is a better way to do it. Here's what Robert Cunningham proposes. He says, The Bible teaches the principles of capitalism, but then applies those principles in a way that resembles what socialism vainly promises. It retains private ownership and free exchange, but then turns around and expects that private ownership and free exchange to be used for the common good. Remember what Jesus said to the rich young ruler? He says, What do I need to do to get right with God to inherit the kingdom? And he says, Go. Sell all you have and give to the poor, and you'll have treasure in heaven. What do you have there? Go sell. Free market exchange. Everything you have, private ownership, give to the poor, used for the common good. That doesn't make sense in our culture, but it makes sense in the Bible. You can have free market exchange, private ownership, and generosity. The Bible makes sense of it. Our sinful hearts can't, but the Bible does. This is capitalism's philosophy accomplishing what socialism in its ambition wants to accomplish but will never accomplish. It takes grace. It takes God. This is what we see in the church. Would you look, at me, look with me quickly at Acts chapter 2? Acts chapter 2. We're going to look at a few verses in the book of Acts and see how this generosity played out. Acts chapter 2. Verse 44 and 45. And all who believed were together and had all things in common, and they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. Look at, 20, look at 45 again. They were selling their possessions, free market exchange, and they were distributing the proceeds to all. Generosity. They maintained private ownership, they were selling their possessions. Free market exchange, private ownership, with generosity for the common good. And then now look at Acts chapter 4. We see the same thing, verses 32 through 34. Acts chapter 4, verse 32 through 34. Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, 
but they had everything in common. And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them, for as many who were, as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need. Thus Joseph, who was also called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. Don't you love it? it this is the vision. They were selling their possessions and giving to all. It's, I mean, it's, it's, we could almost call it biblical capitalistic socialism, right? It doesn't fit the neat and tidy categories that politics wants to put it in. But rather, the Bible says, listen, this isn't state mandated. This isn't, this is voluntary. This is completely voluntary. You cannot mandate generosity. The remedy is an encounter with grace, a commitment to trusting God, a recognition of property rights, a commitment to work, and then a heart of generosity. That's what happens. You want an evidence that you can't mandate generosity? Bernie Sanders. Just give you an example. Not speaking badly against Bernie, but just want to give you an example of this. A man who propagates socialism, okay? And he's known for being very miserly with his money. In his 2007 tax return, his tax return was uh, $1,131,925. He gave to charitable causes 0.3% of his income, which was $1,166. People in this church give more to charity than Bernie Sanders did. And in 2016, he bought his third house for $575,000. Listen, capitalism doesn't have to run on greed. It can run on generosity just as well. And this might be the most compelling witness for the church in our day. To see a group of people who leverage their privilege of wealth for the benefit of God's church and God's mission, which is what has marked this church for a really long time. We're marked by generosity and love. You are a generous, loving people. You get this. You get that there is that we have been made rich to bless richly. That just as 1 Timothy 6.17 says, to the rich in this present age, I charge them to be rich in good deeds and ready and willing to share. And may God, who has marked us by this value, contribute, continue to do so. If we want to change the minds of the upcoming generation and curb this rise of this tendency, we need to show them a generous capitalism. Show them a generosity that loves and cares for others. Jerry Bridges has observed that there are three ways we can relate to our possessions, not just two. The first says, what's yours is mine, I'll take it. That's theft. That's theft. The second says, what's mine is mine, I'll keep it. That's unrighteous Christianity. Just me, private ownership, don't mess with my stuff. That's, that, no, that's wrong. But the third is, what's mine is God's, and I'll share it. And that's the attitude we have to have. Not, what's mine is yours, I'll take it. Or, what's yours is mine, I'll take it. Not, what's mine is mine, I'll keep it. But, what's mine is God's. It's all God's. It's all God's. 
and I'll share it. Well, may God make us ever, ever increasingly a generous people who are marked by these sort of things. Let's pray. Father, we are grateful to you for the grace that you have given us. We know that some of us, if not all of us in this room, have been marked by this theft, this spirit of greed in one way or another. Um, We have all uh, broken this commandment, and we all stand under the judgment of your righteous law. But we thank you that there was a generous Savior who came, who said, what's mine is yours. What's mine is yours. And that included the universe. You are going to share everything with us. And you bought it all. We didn't earn a penny. We earned nothing. Except we were ill-deserving, not just undeserving. We deserved hell. And you've given us heaven forever. How can we not respond and say, God, you are so generous, you are so lavish, you are so kind. Free us from every residual greediness and selfishness that we have in our hearts. And free us to make much of Jesus by sharing and by loving and by giving and by entrusting to others what belongs to them and by recognizing that our wealth is a stewardship. And we thank you for the privileges of this. Give us grace, God. You have given us grace. You have filled this assembly with evidence of your kindness and generosity. And we are so grateful to you that you have given us a disposition that longs to give and not just hoard. But you, are a, you have inclined our hearts to this. So teach us more of who you are. Thank you for sharing with us everything you have, God. You've, what else can you share with us? 